hope you're feeling good as we start a new series in the new year in Thessalonians. If you're new here, new to our church, uh, I want to welcome you. My name is Adam. I'm an elder here, and I serve on staff as the preaching pastor. And this is a, a good time to be here if you're new, because when we're starting a new book, you don't feel like you're coming in halfway through the movie and having to ask everybody what's going on. Uh, you can start this with us, but in particular, why this might be timely in some of your lives, some of you might be looking for a new church. Some of you might uh, be kind of, I don't want to say church shopping because you're church hopping, but I would just call it church seeking, trying to say, Lord, where would you have us? And why I think today is uh, good for that, not just it's a new start of a new year, a new month, but the uh, book we're starting in today uh, does help answer the most important question when you are church seeking. And that most important question is, what makes a good church? I often get asked by people who are on the way out, not because they're disgruntled here, um, and they're on their way out saying, we don't like your church, but hey, what makes a good church, Pastor Adam? I think that would be an awkward conversation. (laughs) Everything opposite of us, I guess. But truly, when some people might be moving into a new town, a new area, and they might say, hey, PA, know any good churches there? And uh, if I know them well, if I've been around them long enough, I don't have to get into the weeds of that question. I just tell them, yeah, here's a list. But if I don't know you well, I may have to ask a a question for you. What do you mean by good church? And I'll let you know if there are any that match your description. I can recall when I moved to this fair town in the summer of 2011 as the youth pastor. I was only here but a week or so, and I knew enough about the church, hence I made the decision to move here with my wife, uh, the people in leadership here, and what I've been told about it. So I was only here a few weeks, and there was a new church planter in town. Imagine that. And he was trying to get the, uh, the feel, the temperature of the church scene around Hickory. And so he showed up at HBC's doorstep, not this building, the one uh, up in the northwest corner of town when it was uh, up where currently HCA is. And it just so happened that that day I was the only pastor on staff in the office. And so they uh, gave him the um, unfortunate opportunity to talk to me. We exchanged pleasantries, and then he got down to brass tacks and just said, um, hey, I'm this church planner new in town, and I'm wondering, you know, are there any good churches here? What do you do with that? I did say, I think we might be one of those. It might be early for me to tell. And then I probably grilled him on what he thinks a good church is, ending with, you know, sorry, friend, I don't know if I was very helpful, so go on your way, V-necked, skinny jean, church planner guy. May God bless you and keep you and shine his face upon you. If I asked you that question today, or if somebody maybe asked you that this week, maybe you're talking about uh, finding a church, and they asked you, hey, what makes a good church? How would you answer that question? I think about it a lot. I read books on it. There are no shortage of books on uh, the church. Surprisingly, in my uh, time looking for books about the church to read, I've actually never come across the title Good Church. But I have come across lots of other fantastic titles. Here's a sampling. If you're just kind of out there saying, man, I really got to figure this church thing out, let me just Google books on the church. And here's what you might find. If you want to start with the basics, you can read books like Simple Church, Welcoming Church, or Everyday Church. But if that's not advanced enough for you, and you want something a little more purposeful, you can read Intentional Church or Deliberate Church. 
If in the process you get lost reading about the church, you can read reappearing church, follow the signs of a vertical church towards a future church, all the way to a meta church. But if that's too meta for you and you long for something ancient, you can read vintage church so that with all things past, present, and future covered, you can be the total church, a living church, a transformational church, and then in our town, become the center church. Now, if you read all those books and none of it's sticking, guess what you can read? Sticky church. But if it gets too sticky, you can read unstuck church. And then if you want to burn the whole thing down because you're tired of reading about books on the church, you can read deconstructing church. And now you've got nothing left to do but find the last book on the shelf, Weird Church. So now you know all the opportunities out there if you're just interested in one adjective titles. But if you're super spiritual and you need the hyphen, you can read Purpose Driven Church, Externally Focused Church, Kingdom Focused Church. That's funny, Externally Focused versus Kingdom Focused. Gospel Centered Church versus Jesus Centered Church. Multiverse Church, not Multiverse Church, Multivoice Church. But I'm sure somebody right now is thinking, the Multiverse Church, that'll sell. You got those Marvel fans out there. I did find a three-word title in the elite category and germane to the issue today called The Real Good Church. Subtitle, How Our Church Came Back from the Dead and Yours Can Too. So that sampling, I mean, that, there's hundreds out there and unfortunately there will be hundreds more. It made me think, if you wiped them all out, what would the pastor do? What would we do without all the books on the church? Crazy thought? Maybe we would just read this about the church. And here's a crazier thought. We'd be totally okay. I mean, I'm not against writing books on the church. I mean, that's kind of what I do day to day. I read about it, think about it. But I'm 100% confident that I can never read another book on the church the rest of my life, but if I applied myself to understanding the letters to the churches that Paul wrote, understanding the four gospels, understanding the book of Acts, which is the story of the church, that I believe we would be fine here. Nothing against reading a book and learning something and pulling some principles out of it. But when we say that we stand on the word of God and it is all sufficient, it has all things pertaining to life and godliness. You can really put that theory to the test, can't you? If you said, I'll take away all those titles, all those books, all those ideas and say, if right now as we opened to 1 Thessalonians, could we just by the study of this book alone find out what God has to say about a good church? And of course, you know the answer. We can so read along with me as I uh, go through just this first chapter. I'll read the first 10 verses in 1 Thessalonians, and then we will uh, look at the marks of a good church this morning. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The grass withers and the flowers fade and the books on the church come and go, but the word of God about the church of God endures forever. So may he bless the preaching, hearing, and applying of this word today. The main idea I want us to start with for this week and even carrying over into the next as we look at the first chapter is this. A good church, a working definition, and, and, and pulled out of the text, not forced upon it. A good church is a work of God's grace that produces gratitude to God for the gospel of Christ and the growth of God's people. That's the working definition of a good church I'm going to be working out of the next two weeks. So I'll say it again. Any good church, every good church, and a good church is God's church. Because any good thing comes from who? Comes from Him. So any good church is a work of God's grace that produces gratitude to God for the gospel of Christ and the growth of God's people. Now you'll hear four G's in there, and I'm not trying to advertise anything for T-Mobile, but this is a four G sermon over the next two weeks. The four words, grace, gratitude, gospel, and growth. Those are four marks of a good church. It starts with grace, of course, and immediately that grace in the true believer turns into gratitude as they look around and recognize this is a work of God, not a work of man. A work of man, what does that produce? It may produce some results. And church experts will live and die by the mantra, healthy things grow. Test that with some things that grow that aren't healthy. See how it stacks up. Do you like um, when the virus goes around your house and grows? It's past Christmas. Is that healthy? So just because a church is growing doesn't mean it's doing what? It's growing in the right ways, the good ways, the marks of a good church. But the next two weeks, we'll see in this introduction, that's all we're going to see in chapter one. It's just Paul's introduction, a letter he writes to a church that he loves, that a church that he knew but wasn't there very long. But by the report that he hears back about them from the time he was gone until the time he writes it, that he could say, this is a good church. I mean, you read this letter as we get into it, and you won't find... One of the major doctrinal issues of the faith at stake that he has to correct, like immediately he had to do in the other earliest letter to the church, Galatians, because the gospel's at stake. The gospel's not at stake in this letter. The return of Christ is an important thing, but that comes later on. There's a lot of ethics that these uh, saved pagans out of Greco-Roman false worship need corrected on, so he'll get to that later. 
He'll have to talk about the time he was there and the influence he had, but this is a good church. It's unlike any other letter because you don't find a ton of corrective material. What you really find is Paul repeating this phrase, and you know, and you know, and you know, as if to say, look, you know the right things, Thessalonians. So excel still more. I want you to to be all you can be in Christ. That's why this is, of all the letters that Paul has written, one of the premier letters to say, if you want to know what a good church looks like, study this letter. If you want to find a good church, know what this letter says to look for. But you won't find anything of man. You won't find Paul writing back and reporting on, oh, you know, I heard of all your programs. Or that new worship center you have. Man, the light show's awesome. Pastor's so cool. You got it going on. You won't find any of that. What you find in this first chapter in this greeting is that a good church is is a place known by the grace of God and the power of God to produce gratitude in the people, gratitude for his grace to them, and and the gospel comes in power and transforms people and they grow. And so that's what we're going to see today. And just on the side note, this isn't an exhaustive list, so I'm not looking for you to copyright grace, gratitude, gospel, and growth and say, there it is, that's the next good church book, the four G's. No, you can read the other letters Paul wrote, and you could find marks of good churches in those places too. I'm just saying when we start out here and why it's important for HBC to see in the new years, because this is the kind of church we want to aspire to be. We want to see it and we want to be it. Because we want God to be glorified in our lives, not just as individuals, but as a collective church. And if there's two things coming right out of the gates that I I would pray for our church to be known by in this community and beyond is that we are a people of grace who are filled with gratitude. That you get around people from this church and people would understand and say, man, I, I get one thing about those people. They understand that they are sinners saved by grace and not of themselves. And man, they are grateful for the gospel. They are thankful people. So let's look at that today. The first mark of a good church, according to Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 1, is that a good church exists by the grace of God. So the first mark of a good church is grace. And uh, we'll see it in three dimensions in verse 1. We'll see it in the, uh, the gifts of grace, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy the giver of the gifts, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and then a greeting of grace, grace to you and peace. So let's just pick those apart as we go. A good church, if it exists by the grace of God, first, if there's no people, it doesn't exist, right? Because it's not a building. So it shouldn't shock us that just even in a greeting, him saying Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, which I get is the standard greeting in the time he writes it all around the world. Just like when you write a letter to somebody, you address it to that person, your, their name's first, our name's last. It was the reversed here. He writes, he identifies himself and his friends. But we don't want to let that slip past our attention that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were all pictures of God's grace. Go back to the book of Acts. We're going to be there quite a bit when we study this book because it's the story that explains the letter. And where do we meet Paul? Well, we don't meet Paul. We meet Saul in chapter 8. And he's in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. That's where you meet the author of this letter. Chapter 8. Well, you meet him at the end of chapter 7 who is um, standing there, a young man named Saul, giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. 
Chapter 8 picks up, he's in hearty agreement, putting him to death, and on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem began, and they were scattered throughout the regions. Verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church. He wasn't content with um, waiting for people to try to gather in public places. What does it say Saul's doing? He's going from house to house and dragging people off to put them in prison. Nice guy, huh? Trophy of grace? Not yet. Chapter 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, goes and asks for some letters to go to synagogues in Damascus, and if he was going to find anybody belonging to the way, the Christian faith, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. As it so happens, he falls to the ground when a flash of light comes around him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. That's Saul's testimony, testimony of grace. I mean, if you could pick out a testimony that says, was, was there ever somebody running in entirely the opposite direction of God, of Christ, of love, of the gospel? of grace. Like, could they be in all points possible trying to do the entire opposite of honoring and glorifying God? And, and in such a twisted way, thinking they were doing a good thing in trying to murder the disciples. It's Paul. Uh, there's no equal in trying to say, if something, if we're really, as we read this morning, sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I present to you, Paul, uh, don't take my word for it. Take his own word for it. How does he describe himself? 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I call that the grace sandwich of every Christian. Not just because I like sandwiches and it's getting close to lunch. But he says, I started by grace and I'm working, but I'm working by grace. It's a sandwich. Grace works grace. It begins and ends with the grace of God. In the middle, what do we do? We work out what he's working in. Paul is a story of God's grace. His more extended testimony in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 14, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful. He put me into service. Though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. More than abundant. He, he's not just saying, I needed a little bit of grace to, to serve the Lord and honor the Lord and work for the Lord. I needed abundant grace. And where did I find it? In the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. No, no, he, no he, he is not commending anything of his own work all of his life is a story of grace, and that's the main character of 1 Thessalonians. Yet there's something to be said about Paul's humility in this opening greeting. He, right out of the gates when he's writing these letters, he's not about, ah, oh, it's got to just be me, right? I've got to get the credit. No, a man who's touched by the grace of God is a humble one, and he recognizes, hey, I'm bringing these guys along with me, so let's meet these other uh, friends saved by grace. Sylvanus, so if we're back in Acts... Go five more chapters over to chapter 15 and you'll meet Sylvanus, except his name in Acts 15, 22 is Silas. Sylvanus would have been a, um, 
a Latinized version of Silas, the Semitic root, and uh, it's the same guy though, Silvanus Silas, and I'm probably going to say Silas because Silvanus has more syllables. And uh, so Silas we meet in Acts 15, out of nowhere, he's, he's part of the show. Whenever there's a church that's been in Antioch and Gentiles are being converted, Greeks, non-believers come into Christ and uh, there's an uproar because, wait a second, should these people come into Christ have to keep parts of the Old Testament law? Pop quiz, yes or no? They got to keep parts of the law? Right? There's a few good things right in the Old Testament they need to do to be saved. True or false? False, good. And Silvanus, or Silas, is one of the men there, a leading man, it says, among the brothers in the Jerusalem council. That's a pretty impressive title. In the early church in the Jerusalem council, that there was Silas, and he's going to be a, um, a right-hand man of Paul. Uh, he's a gifted man. If you look down to verse 32, Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves. So Silas is never listed as a capital A apostle, but he is listed as a prophet, and he's one that can do what? Encourage and strengthen the brothers with a lengthy message. And all God's people said, amen. Guys have been preaching long since the jump. In good company. Uh, he was such a faithful brother that whenever Paul and Barnabas, who had a disagreement over whether to take Mark down in verse 39 of chapter 15, when Barnabas is going to take Mark and Paul now needs a co-pilot, he chooses Silas. So Silas is a gift of grace, but he comes a different way than Paul. Paul, you get the full story. Silas, you don't. He's a great man. He's a gifted man, but he's still a gift of grace. And he still needed, and Paul needed, what does it say in verse 40? They needed committed to the brethren to the grace of the Lord. They were both saved by grace. They're commended by grace. And they're going to go out and preach grace. Why do we say that? Because that was the decision that the Jerusalem council, the first church council ever, the most important church council because it decided the answer to the question, what must people do to be saved? Is it faith or works? What's the answer in Acts 15, 11? Peter said it. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. There's your answer. That's why that Jerusalem council was so important. Before all the other councils getting into all the other things about theology, who is Christ, who is God, here's what they knew. How are people saved? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, and that was the message of grace that Paul and Silas and Timothy went out with. Last but not least on the list is Timothy, and we meet him just one chapter later, verse 1, Acts 16. It's right in front of you. Also, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, help yourself to one in the pews. There's usually one at the end of each row. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. So he leaves with Silas, verse 40. Two verses later, we get to meet Timothy, younger man, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, even though his father wasn't. He was a Greek. Verse 2 says Timothy was well spoken of. And so Paul takes him with them, and the three of those guys head out on Paul's second missionary journey around the top of the Ark of the Aegean Sea, uh, taking the gospel to places it hasn't been yet. So there is the start of the grace of God in a church. And, and that should make sense to us. When we say a good church exists by the grace of God, the first thing that exists there are what? People. Sinners saved by grace. Because that's what the church is. It's people in a place. But it starts with people from different backgrounds. I hope if you're encouraged by anything this morning, and just, just a, a thinking 
quickly on the characters of Saul who became Paul and then Silas and then Timothy, how your life fits into that. I mean, you look around this room, just like those guys, everybody's coming from a different background. No church, a lot of church, hate the church. It's here. It's represented. But you know what? That actually doesn't matter, does it? Because no matter how many different backgrounds you have here, what's the one word that got us all in? Grace. That's the only word that gets any of us in. And if you don't come by grace through faith in Christ alone, you haven't come. If you think you've come by some work of your own, something you did, you haven't come. Because a true church, a real church, a good church exists by the grace of God. Second, after the grace gifts, you have to talk about the giver. And that's what Paul moves to next, to the church, the gift, the people in it, of the Thessalonians. That's where this church was. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy brought the gospel there. But where are they located? Two places. They're located in Thessalonica, and they're located in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First one we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, just to kind of get us up to speed. Also, if you... Uh, have your finger back in Acts. Uh, it's nice kind of how this all lays out, learning about Paul, then Silvanus, then Timothy, because then Acts 17, you get to Thessalonica. And so where is this place? Well, it's, um, it's around the top of where the Aegean Sea comes in, and you have uh, Philippi would be back to the east, and then you go back down around there through Galatia, and then down into Judea, Antioch first, and then in Jerusalem. So this second missionary journey, Paul and the guys are just going up north, bending around, and they end up in Thessalonica. What do you need to know about it? Well, it was, it was a bigger city for that time. I mean, we're talking, Paul probably arrived here around A.D. 48 or 49, and it was a city of about 200,000 people. You know, close to, I guess, the size I was looking up this week around here of Winston-Salem. And that's, that, that's no small change there, especially for that time period. It was probably second only to Corinth and Rome for size of city in the Mediterranean in the area. And because it was a port city, that's, you had uh, two things going. There was a port city and then um, this uh, road that the Romans built in uh, second century BC called the Via Ignatia. And that was the uh, main 600 mile, I think it was, or 700 mile thoroughfare, the main highway. It was 40, you know, you jump on 40 here, you can get out to California. Uh, that was the Via Ignatia, except it was only 700 miles, not 3,000. And that's the way you're going to go to get across the Mediterranean uh, by land. It goes right through Thessalonica. And God wanted those guys in that place for the gospel to go forth. You could actually, you know, go there today. That's just a side note for those people that are like, yeah, nothing in the Bible's real. It's all made up. Okay, it's Thessalonica today, right? But you could book a trip right now. I checked into it this week. For $1,331, you can get a round trip from Charlotte over there. It's real. Still don't believe me? Buy your ticket, go over, and then come back like you were right. These places are real. And that's the thing, you know, that's the thing that's got to start loosening the bolts for some people that are skeptics. So if Thessalonica's real, Timothy, Sylvanus, and Paul, yeah, I guess so. Convinced that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Nah, I'm out on that. Where do you get to decide what you're out on? What, what's fact and what's fiction? I mean, I could see if um, all the names of these places were Narnia, Middle Earth, right? Fantasy. Except for some really diehards you think it's real. But, you know, 
this is the, the, I just, I can't get past sometimes just stepping back and going, well, like I can look up and learn about this place today and nobody in their right mind is disagreeing with whether this place actually existed and that there were churches there and there are still inscriptions to this day. The gospel came in power and it was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people were gifts of grace. That's how the church started down here on earth. But what Paul wants to show as the grace in this is that they exist in some place. They're of a place. They're of Thessalonica. We're of Hickory. But if you're a Christian in here today, where are you in? You're in Christ. But he does something really important that we have to see. He, he links God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 20 years after Christ goes back to heaven, 20 years, he understands the centerpiece of our theology, the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is equal to God the Father, and that you cannot separate the two. Any true believer, a person that is in the church, born again, redeemed, is a person who is found not just in a place on earth, but found in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the two equal in essence, different in person different in work. But as Christ said about himself, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. And then he goes on to say for the people that were skeptics in his day, I and the Father are one. They picked up stones to stone him. And he says, okay, hold on. What, let's, if you don't believe what are the words I'm saying, how about the works? How do you explain the works? Because I'm doing the works from my Father. Are you stoning me for those? All these miracles I'm doing, is that what I'm getting stoned for? Isn't that the Messiah you expected to come back? So he goes on to say in verse 37 of John 10, if I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. You want, you want to discount my words that I and the Father are one, then I'll back it up with my works. If, if you don't want to, if the works, are, like, what else can I do? So then he says in verse 38, but if I do them, if I do them, though you do not believe my words, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. You know, in this early letter to the church, Paul hadn't had to take a class in theology. He didn't have to read systematic from Grudem like we have for the lead class. He just had to know the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just had to be around the other apostles that were around Christ. He just had to hear the message of Christ. And when he was changed by it, he understood that it's both. It's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and as doing that, you're calling him the Son of God. And you're not picking up stones, as the Jews did in his day, to stone him for making himself equal with God. You're actually getting down on your knees and bowing before him because he is God. The deity of Christ is right there in this first verse. And Paul has made a connection between the two. He's... Not a God like the gods of the Greco-Roman world, harsh and exhausting, and if you mess up and move one step out of place, they're going to take you out. No, he teaches them about this God, the God the Father who is gracious. And how is he gracious to us? He sent his son to die for us. And if his son has died for us and we have received the grace of God in Christ, we then have that peace with him. Paul links these two together, and we need to hear this in our... Um, culture today that wants to, you know, Christ is fine as, as long as he's just one of many gods. What's Paul showing us here in this introduction? If you have God as your father, then you have Jesus as your Lord. 
If you have Jesus as your Lord, you have God as your Father. If you don't have Jesus as your Lord, you don't have God as your Father. And if you don't have God as your Father, then you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord. So where does that leave Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons? They're not Christian. They can be very nice. Some of them are your neighbors, co-workers, family members. But they're a cult. And what is a cult? It's somebody who takes the real thing and tries to counterfeit it. Not by twisting it and making it so unbelievable that you go, yeah, that's so far from Christianity. No, they both try to make it so close. We believe the Bible, you believe the Bible. You believe in God, we believe in God. You believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus. Mormons teach a heretical lie about God the Father. They say he has flesh and bones as tangible as man's. It's heresy. They also taught that the Father visited its founder in person when he was 14. They add to the scriptures about God the Father, making him some manifestation of a humanized deity. And if you believe in that God, even if you say you believe in it along with everything here, you're damned because you're worshiping the wrong God. No better the Jehovah's Witnesses who lie about Jesus Christ, that he was not humanized deity, but he was deified humanity. He was created by God. He wasn't part of the Trinity. Their own teaching, quote, we do not worship Jesus Christ. We do not believe that he is God. Why do I mention these two cults? Because they masquerade as Christian. And they're in our town. And you know them and you love them and you're ministering to them. But what you have to do is just take a simple verse like, we are a church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that simple truth there, know that there is what? There is no separating the two, that you could have one but not the other. Because if you've compromised on that, you've compromised the gospel. So just in that simple greeting, it may seem like an ordinary thing. You have gifts of grace, you have the giver of grace, and then you have a greeting of grace to wrap it up. Grace to you in peace. And that's a wonderful greeting. It's a wonderful blessing because to know the grace of God is to know Christ as Savior and Lord. And then as Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by grace, we have peace with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, how can you tell a person, how can you look someone in the eye and give them that most precious blessing? How can you write a letter to someone or as we do with the benediction here, say grace to you and peace to you? It's because for believers, you know the grace of God the Father because you have met it in Jesus Christ the Son and believed in him for salvation. And by believing in salvation, you have peace with God. So grace in peace to you. That's the first part. That's a good church that exists by the grace of God. But now what does Paul move to? He moves from grace to gratitude in verses two and three. A good church expresses gratitude to God. The second mark of a good church is gratitude. As R.C. Sproul said, probably quoting somebody else, but I can never track that down, the essence of Christian theology is grace. The essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. And, and that's, that's how you operate in life. If you're going to be a healthy Christian, if you're going to be growing, it's because you're constantly going back to in your hardest of times or in your best of times, your worst day or your best day. I am a recipient of God's grace, and therefore I have something to thank Him for. If I don't have anything else to be thankful for, I can thank Him. What can I thank Him for? that he's been gracious to me in his son, and that any good I see in myself is no credit to myself. It's credit all to him. I was watching uh, my, um, 
beloved Steelers play yesterday. Uh, you know, they're on the precipice of not making the playoffs, so um, you won't see me for a while. If that happens, I'll go off to some island and contemplate my existence. But yesterday they were, they were playing, and they um, trying to get in the playoffs, and, and they've uh, rode the hot hand of a third-string quarterback the last three games, which is usually an unlikely thing in the month of December. Won three games, now if like 20 other things happen, they can make the playoffs. But they interviewed the guy after the game and this precious reporter who has the unenviable job of interviewing the third string quarterback when the only backstory to make this an interesting interview is to kind of highlight that like you are a nobody. You're, you're pretty much as a third stringer just getting a check. Never expected to do anything. And she was you know, trying to dance around saying that, like, hello, so-and-so. Yeah, I mean, just a few weeks ago, you hadn't played in a year and a half. And, you'd been... and I'm thinking, hey, being a third-string quarterback, that's great. I'd take it any day. But um, this guy's a competitor, and he's been sitting in that position for a few years. And she goes, you know, in this, the pouring rain of Baltimore, and we've just been victorious. We have been victorious, as if I've done anything but sit on my couch and eat chips. And she goes, how, how do you feel or something like that? What's it like having been this super loser? She didn't say that, but... You know, and here you are, and you've led them right back into contention. And he stops and kind of gathers his thoughts. And you could tell he, he wasn't just ready to spout off some like, you know, I've had this in me all along. And I've just been, you know, given a dealt a bad hand. Now I, I plot. No, he just stops and, and he says, gratitude. I'm thankful. He's like, because I'm getting to do the thing I love to do. Um, and he, he gave praise to God. I don't know his testimony or anything like that, but I just was caught off guard that, it, that he had the composure to take it all in, what he's just been through, the ups and downs I'm sure he's had, and then asked, how do you feel in this moment? What's going through your mind? And he just says, gratitude. Because he recognized this gift, getting to be where he is, doing what he's doing. And, and, and that's the life of a Christian when you stop. And, and if somebody right now said, hey, as 2024 is beginning, as the last year came to an end with everything you've been through, all the ups and downs and ins and outs where you find yourself today, what do you feel and how do you feel? Can you say gratitude? If you haven't been looking back and trying to trace the hand of God and seeing the, his grace in your life, then it probably won't be the first thing on your mind. But it'd be a good start to the new year. And that's what Paul gives thanks for. Notice he doesn't thank them for how awesome they are, verse 2. Who does he give thanks to? God. He gives thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, what is it that he has heard about them that makes him so thankful? Well, first off, it's been um, a little bit of time since he was there. If you go back to Acts uh, 17, we get nine verses on this church. That's all you get. I mean, you know, sometimes as I'm going, plowing through genealogies and reading in the Bible, reading plan I'm in, I'm like, man, I would love some more information on some of these churches. And, but we get genealogies. I know I filed that complaint a long time ago. But, but here's what we know about this good church. Acts 17, Paul just gets beat up and jailed and thrown out of Philippi and dusts himself off and then he, he and Silas travel on through Amphipolis, I'm not going to read that again, and Apollonia and they come to Thessalonica, Acts 17.1 and he finds a synagogue and this would have been in a city of 2,000, you know, expected that there would be some Jews there. 
So he finds the synagogue, and according to his custom, he goes there, and for three Sabbaths, he does something that no church has ever figured out how to do. This is really great stuff. I I wish we would know how to do this. He reasons with them from the scriptures. All that books on like how to do church and like what's the secret sauce and how, do, how does a church start? How do you plan a church? Verse three, you explain and give evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. That's how a church starts. When you preach the gospel. And he said, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And verse four, some of them were persuaded. So, you know, some of them, referring to the Jews, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, so you had some pagan converts, and then a number of the leading women. You had some metropolitan people. It's, I think what Paul is just showing you, the Holy Spirit, and it's actually Luke recording this, is look, this was a little revival, if you want to call that, breaking out here in Thessalonica. And as good as it was, and as pumped as he was, look what happens next. Now, I'm not saying it happened immediately. I mean, he could have been in Thessalonica as short as some believe is three weeks, three Sabbaths. Or there's some white space between verse four and five. You know, this good thing's happening. Christians, people are becoming Christians, converted. Verse five, but then these Jews see what's happening. And maybe a few weeks or months go by. That's why some say Paul could have been here as much as six to nine months. Became jealous, grabbed some people, some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And now, now again, this is a bigger city. So when we're like, oh, big deal, uproar. Well, it's, it's, that would maybe been like an intimidating scene. And they show up at the house of Jason, poor guy, who's, I guess, hosting Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they're saying, bring these guys out. But they didn't find them. So maybe in between verses five and six with all of, I mean, because I don't know, you know how quickly you could form a big uproarious mob but it was enough time maybe for Jason to say, hey, you guys got to get out of town. This probably isn't going to go well. Verse six, so they didn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy, but they dragged Jason and other brothers, Christians, before the city authorities. And here's that famous line in some versions, these men have upset the world or turned it upside down. And this Jason guy is right at the heart of it. And they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying, there's another King Jesus. And that's what this was all about. I mean, that's what they were trying to get him on, treason, even though the Jews were just upset because why? They were saying, hey, you're, whatever you're believing, it's changed. It's good news. Jesus Christ, the one that was you know, killed at the hands of your leaders 20 years ago, this Jesus, this is the one, this is the Messiah. So they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So apparently some agreement was made uh, that, hey, you can't, these guys can't come back to town. If we catch you hosting them again, you're going to be in trouble. So that's all we get. That's the story. But what does Paul get? Well, back in 1 Thessalonians verse th- or chapter 3, if you look there real quick, Paul says to this church, hey, even though I had to leave in a, in a hurry, we sent Timothy back. And Timothy's the one that now brought a good report to Paul. And here's the heart of the good report, verse 3. This is what he's grateful to God for. Here's what I heard about you. Whether it's been a year later, a year and a half, Here's what I keep thinking about. When I remember you and I hear about you, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a real Christian, friends. 
I mean, when sometimes we're like, hey, what's the definition of a Christian? How would you describe it? What are some things you would say? What are some virtues we should have? Well, the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Now, those we already saw when we were studying 1 Corinthians 13 this year, faith, hope, and love, these three remain. Paul, I mean, long before he wrote 1 Corinthians, he's writing 1 Thessalonians, and faith, love, and hope, the order's not the same. I don't think we should make too big a deal of the order. But I think what we should stop and see here is to ask ourselves, hey, um, in an early church, before you have a ton of developed anything, letters circulating other than the one that came here, Book of Romans hasn't been written yet and all this other stuff, here was the basic makeup of a true Christian. Maybe it's good for us to read this today, this first Sunday of the new year, and examine our lives as we're going to take communion this morning. Here's... Here's the benchmarks he's saying. This is what I give thanks to God for because you're the real deal. And here's what I remember about you. A work of faith, a labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in Christ. Faith, hope, and love. A work of faith. Of is the most important word in that phrase. Why? Because it's saying your works belong to your faith, not the other way around. If your faith belongs to your works, then what are you? Working your way to heaven. Works-based religion, earning your salvation. Notice also work is in the singular. It's, it's the whole corpus of your work. It's like he's saying, look, when you look at the, the whole game film of your life, not just that time you messed up, but when you look at the totality of your life, your work as a Christian, it's a work of faith that what you're doing with your life, wherever you are, wherever you're working, wherever you're living, whoever you're around, it's a work of, that's coming out of your faith. That's a true Christian. That's what we're to be known by. You know, somebody looks at the total picture of your life. Not your worst day, not your best day. But from the time you came to Christ, believer, can they say it's a work of faith? That's how you live. Now, how does that work show up? Because that word work in the Greek, it's kind of a, a, just a general term. It's, it's something energized. It's, it's alive. Faith works. Faith without works is dead. So it's, it's a faith that you can see. But what do you see? That's the next part, the labor of love. Because that word labor is, 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 that's the word for something strenuous, difficult, challenging. Um, it's the same word that uh, when Jesus, John 4, 6, by the woman at the well, it says Jesus being wearied from his journey. So this labor of love is a different category of work. It's saying when you love people, which is the premier virtue of them all, loving God and loving people, and when you do that, when you're laboring in that, that's the real thing. Uh, have you labored in love for the people around you lately? What's that labor of love? It's sacrificial first and foremost. Like you're giving everything you got. If you haven't really given everything you got to the people you say you love, do you really love them? Or is it just convenient? You know, like Jesus says, hey, if you love the people that love you, what difference does that make? But it's when you have to go above and beyond what you can do in your own what? In your own strength. To say, man, to love this person, to give everything I have for them, you know, to come back one last time, to forgive them again, that's a labor of love. And he's saying that's real Christianity. And that's what I hear about you. That's what I saw in you when you guys came to Christ. And that's what's still true about you. Your faith is working. Your love, it's exerting. It's, 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 it's real. I can see it. I can hear about it. 
How long you got to do that? That sounds difficult. Well, steadfastness of hope. You endure. That's the word steadfastness. You keep going. Why? Because you're just pulling yourself up by your own strength, hoping to get somebody to notice you, doing it for recognition? No. You have steadfastness of hope in who? In the Lord Jesus Christ. That he'll reward you. That he sees. He knows. That labor of love, the stuff that cuts you to the heart, the hard conversations, the late nights, you know, all the stuff that breaks our heart in relationships with people as we put ourselves out for others. And we want to give up. He's saying, don't give up. Because the real believers there in Thessalonica, though they were afflicted, there was a steadfastness and endurance of their hope, but it wasn't in themselves. It was hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this beautiful picture, all of this is happening, their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's who they're doing it for. He's who's given them strength. But who's watching? What's it say? In the presence of our God and Father. I mean, he sees the whole picture, and he's proud of you. All the endurance, all the, all the suffering, and this church has only been around a year and a half, but they're still going strong, and he's encouraging and affirming their faith and their love and their hope. But he's not, he's not making them the hero of the story because you go back to verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God in all of this. He's the one that gets the what? He gets the glory because he's the one that showed the grace. So friend, as we, as we think about being a good church, I mean, this has to be the starting point. Before we get next week, next week we get into the stuff that we should hear. Gospel. We should see growth. Uh, that'll be another week of examination in a different way. But backing, backing up before that today, you, you have to say, hey, what makes a good church and what am I want to be a part of if I'm looking for a church right now, if I'm part of a church, if I'm thinking of leaving a church? I shouldn't be if the grace of God is there in the people. Evidence of God's grace and, and people who are thankful, giving glory to Him for it. Not, not just throwing around glory to everybody else. Hey, look what this person does that. No, first and foremost saying all of it is a work of God's grace. And that brings us to communion this morning. I mean, what better way to finish this time than to say, hey, do we have anything greater to be thankful for than not just the person of Christ, but the work of Christ on the cross? If you didn't grab one of these on the way in, when we take communion here, if you're new, we have the tables out back uh, at each door. If you missed it, just hold your hand up. Some of our ushers have some in the back they'll bring down to you. And just, just keep your hand up there. We're gonna, I'll read from... 1 Corinthians 11, and one of the important things we know of in taking communion is that it's for a believer, and it's for a believer who's examining their life and saying exactly what we saw this morning. Look, I am a sinner saved by grace, and I'm not taking communion this morning because I had a perfect week. I'm taking communion this morning because I never have any perfect weeks, that I come needing what? Reminded that it's the merit of Christ's righteousness and not my own. On the other hand, if you're not in Christ today, you have heard the gospel. It's a gospel of grace. It's a gospel that what? That like with Paul says that it's nothing that I bring. It's everything that Christ did on my behalf. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, what do you need to know about him? Well, all you need to know is what we're doing right now with this. We're remembering that he is who he said he was. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God who came to earth to die for sinners. 
He lived a perfect life. That's what the, this is about. This is about saying it's, it's his perfect life that was accepted because mine never could be. And it's his blood that was poured out for my forgiveness of sins. And if I call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, I call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. You who think that you can work your way don't need something like this, don't need his work. Suddenly you realize, like Paul realized, everything that I was doing before, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, thinking I was the most righteous. And you know what? He probably did keep the law better than anybody did. And then in that moment when he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus, he realized none of it added up to anything. It was either all of Christ or nothing. And if you don't know the Lord as Savior this morning, you call upon him. He's your everything. He's your all. He's your righteousness. He's your forgiveness. He's your redemption. And he's merciful. And he's kind and he's good. And he came the first time to give us all of those blessings. And he is coming a second time in judgment. Which is why we don't take the gospel lightly. Because those who do not know him, trust him, love him, believe in him, he says this about himself, the wrath of God abides on that person. It's a serious thing to know who the Son of God is, to know who Jesus Christ is, to know what he's done and to reject it. And it's offered to you this morning in salvation, but you have to believe it by faith. I'm going to pray and then Steve's going to play and just give us time to reflect on the work of Christ on our behalf, on the person of Christ, who he is and what he's done. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We pray that as we reflect, that we would first and foremost reflect on your grace today because everything we have is all of grace. And we praise you for that. And then, Lord, when we look to our own lives to examine them, we're not looking for faith that belongs to works. We're we're just saying our works they come out of our faith. And if our faith has been weak lately, we come to you to be strengthened, Christ. If our love has been cold lately and it hasn't labored, we come to you, Christ, who who burned with a, a burning love that has never been seen before. Perfect love for the Father, perfect love for people, even perfect love for the sinner. And then we think of hope this morning. And if we have not endured, if we have been uh, weak and we have said we, we, we're given up, we can't go any further, well, we realize that Christ, you went to the furthest, furthest extent for us. So our endurance and our hope doesn't come out of our own strength. It comes out of yours. And so everything we have this morning, Christ, what do we have that isn't yours? Faith, hope, love, all of it we commend in you. All of it we ask to continue to do a work in us. In your name, amen.